0: This ends at prom is a critical analysis show and is being produced in solidarity with the WGA and sag After strikes. The podcast you're about to hear was produced during the strikes, and without the labor of the writers and actors currently on strike, the movie being reviewed here wouldn't exist. For more information, feel free to visit the Freelance Solidarity Project at FreelanceSolidarity.org.
2: your goddamn idol and i don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title but i
0: In our popular consciousness, writer-director John Hughes's hockey-comedy drama The Breakfast Club stands as the definitive 1980s teen film. You know what happens. Five conflicting high school archetypes are forced to spend an all-day detention together. Anthony Michael Hall is the brain. Emilio Estevez is the athlete. Ali Sheedy is the basket case. Molly Ringwald is the princess, and Judd Nelson is the criminal. Ultimately, all involved discover they have a lot more in common than anybody thought. Ain't that something? Also, these 16-year-olds are smarter than anybody else in the entire universe. Ain't that really something? (laughs) This is how Mike McBeardo McPadden opens his essay on The Breakfast Club in teen movie Hell, uh, we will be referring to this throughout the episode, but it felt like the appropriate way to start our three-year anniversary episode. Yeah,
1: like Breakfast Club just feels like the most obvious movie for us to be doing, mm-hmm. and yet we've just put it off this long.
0: We've been putting it off because we wanted it to be for a for a big moment. You well, know, it's the teen movie. It's it's
1: the teen movie, and also within like the first. Like 25 episodes of the show, we did the other two Molly Ringwald John Hughes films. And it's like, oh, we can't just go through all of them immediately.
0: (laughs) Exactly. So... We are not only celebrating three years of The Sense at Prom, we are closing the book on the Molly Ringwald trilogy, which is wild to think about. She's got plenty more movies, but this is the end of her big three.
1: The the the, the John Hughes films.
0: Yes, the, the the John Hughes trilogy. Um, And also doing a deep dive into a movie that, I mean, what hasn't already been said?
1: Yeah. I think the reason that this is, the movie of the eighties is that it feels so much more substantial than other high school movies, mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, "I'm just gonna try to get a prom. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just gonna just go fall in love with this guy. Going to just try to take a peek at some girls who are naked." Mm-hmm. There's just a lot more going on in this movie than there is other teen films.
0: Absolutely. And what's fascinating is the Breakfast Club is one of those movies. That has permeated culture so deeply that I think people also forget not only just what happens, but how nuanced it is, how it Mm -hmm. approaches it, because it's just been parodied and referenced to death. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm going to fully put my cards on the table and say that that kind of happened to me as well. I know in previous episodes of the show, we've talked about The Breakfast Club in passing and... I've always been like, yeah, Some Kind of Wonderful is my favorite John Hughes teen movie. I think it's better than The Breakfast Club, or The Breakfast Club hasn't aged that well. And man, this rewatch kind of rocked me to my core. (laughs) There
1: is maybe one thing about this movie that I would say hasn't aged great, because John Hughes just loves putting Anthony Michael Hall on a black scent.
0: Yeah, he thinks it's the funniest thing in the world. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Over here, sounding like Dusty Roads.
0: He really does, though. <laughs> Anthony Michael Hall's attempt at sounding black just ends up sounding like Dusty Rhodes. I'm gonna
1: take that title from you, Daddy.
0: <laughs> That's hard times, Daddy.
1: Yeah. So, like, I just, I don't, I don't, I don't know, man. I, I thought I knew about the Breakfast Club. I thought I knew how I felt about the Breakfast Club.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I loved this movie so much in high school Mm -hmm. because it felt it felt worldly it it knew something Mm -hmm. it knew something was up in a way that a lot of other teen films didn't and then i was like i don't know like john hughes is like we were kind of kind of dismissive to john hughes the last time we talked about him some two-ish years ago Mm -hmm. i think i've i think i've turned the corner on john hughes and i have settled down like right where i need to be right where i want to be
0: so you say you loved this movie in high school. Do you remember anything about your earliest experiences with The Breakfast Club? It was on TV. Okay. I mean, there's a good chance that like, it's
1: one of those things where like my mom may have loved this movie, but like she didn't like it. Like she liked Ferris Bueller. Mm-hmm. That was that was her John Hughes movie. Mm-hmm. But it's probably one of those things where like you're on TV and your parents go like, "Oh my God, blah 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 is on TBS. You ever seen this?" And then you watch it. Hmm. Um. I think there's that, but also like watching this movie and watching the opening and uh, giggling because Bender has fag written on his locker and Mm -hmm. I straight up forgot about that because that doesn't make the TV cut. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, man, at this point, like I've crossed over into like some transcendentalism where now like when I see like, indirect homophobia that just uses slurs i'm like i think that's just funnier than it is offensive
0: i was thinking about this too actually in that we consume so much you know old teen media so the word fag gets thrown around really often mm-hmm. and i'm kind of with you on it like it's obviously awful like it's not a good word we should not be condoning it we should not be giving it a pass but i have just gotten very zen with it at this point so Mm -hmm. whenever it happens i'm just like all right maybe (laughs) that's desensitization maybe like i just find it really funny where it's like that old card that's the word you're using
1: it was a simpler time it's like how i'm like wistful for fucking old school republicans like gene simmons just being like i don't have issues with trans people they buy kiss records And that's all he cares about is the bottom line. Like, man, times were simpler. (laughs) It was a lot easier when, like, that's the worst thing you had to deal with.
0: Right. Like, how dare the world make me long for a day when Mitt Romney was the most radical Republican I knew. Right. God. God. And this
1: is during fucking Reagan. Right. (laughs) But like, I don't know, like the the opening intro to this, it's one of those things where I've seen this movie dozens of times in my life and I've seen the actual opening like five minutes of it, maybe like four times <laughs> because you I would always catch it in progress.
0: No, you're right. And there's definitely parts of this movie that hit a little bit differently when you're older, especially if you did not grow up during the time period, because there's references that you might not be familiar with, like uh, the fact that when they talk about Bender being a criminal, there's a carving on the wall of, I don't like Mondays. I
1: also love Garfield. (laughs)
0: Those who don't know, um, is not a reference to Garfield, is a reference to a, a girl who committed a school shooting, and that was the the excuse she gave was I don't like Monday. Yeah, it's what that Boomtown Rats song's about. It is.
1: I also the Fine Art of Surfacing by the Boomtown Rats is a goddamn masterpiece of an album. You should listen to
0: it. <laughs> So, I like everyone else in the English speaking Western world, uh, has also seen The Breakfast Club. I watched it when I was young. This was one that was introduced to me by my mom and my aunt when I, you know, started really getting into teen films. And I remember really liking it. I remember being viscerally angry about Allison's makeover at the end. Oh, we'll talk about that. We'll, Every, everyone has feelings. Yeah, on that. we'll talk about it. And it's weird because I feel like as I've gotten older, my feelings have like evolved a little bit on her. Um but I also did have the Backswing you're talking about where I got a little older and the Breakfast Club was just parodied to death and I was like, it's actually not that good. Beh, 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 beh. Um, I learned more about John Hughes, the man. And I was like, he's a weirdo conservative and was like weirdly into like Reagan era politics. I don't like him, fuck him and everything he made. 16 Candles is terrible, which like it is. Um, Half
1: of 16 Candles is good. That's a
0: true point, half of it. Which you can listen to our episode. It's like one of the earliest ones we've ever done. Um, But now I have, again, learned even more about the man and learned more about how this movie came to be, and it has reshaped my feelings on it. And I'm I'm with you. I think my pendulum has found its groove of where it needs to be for this movie, where I'm not feeling hyperbolic in any particular direction, and I enjoy the movie better for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm not even going to reference a synopsis from Fandango or IMDb, because it was already included in the Teen Movie Hell description, because you all know what happens, five archetypal teens have Saturday detention. they learn things about each other there you go yeah that's that's the breakfast club and obviously that is the most surface level interpretation of the movie, which honestly that's the interpretation that people parodying this movie end up fulfilling is just the surface because there's this movie is saying so much more than that this movie's as deep as you want it to be absolutely and Because it's our three-year anniversary, we're getting deep. Deep. You're much deeper than I am. I can't imagine why. (laughs) So, Harmony, what kind of context do you want to bring to the table in terms of how The Breakfast Club came to be?
1: So, if I recall correctly, John Hughes actually conceived this script before Sixteen Candles. Correct. But because of circumstances, that one got made first. And that played halfway into sex comedies, which was very much like what studios were trying to do with teen films at the time, Mm -hmm. but it did do something else. The good, the good half of that movie was doing something really good. This goes much more heavily in that direction and it changes a lot of stuff for the next several years. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of settle into something that we'll see this year. So this was not a, a, a nothing year for teen releases. However, We don't do a ton of films from from this stretch of time, and I was like trying to figure out why, and I did a little reading, and I I, I think I understand why. So we have alum from this year of Just One of the Guys, Once Bitten, and Heaven Help Us. The following year, we have Pretty in Pink and Nothing Else Thus Far that we have covered on this show. Mm -hmm. Looking at the teen releases from this year, there's a common trend amongst these. So what to do Teen Wolf, Better Off Dead, Weird Science, Once Bitten, The Goonies, A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Fright Night, Heaven Help Us, Tough Turf, The Boy Next Door with Charlie Sheen, Real Genius with Val Kilmer, and Back to the Future all have in common.
0: Boys!
1: It's boys. (laughs) There are many significant teen films from this time, but they all star boys. Yeah. And... I think Breakfast Club kind of can get away with something where we talk about this all the time, where, like, Back to the Future is considered a classic, not a coming-of-age teen film Mm -hmm. because it stars a boy. Breakfast Club, it's like, well, there's three boys. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of, like, scooch on by, and it's not a love story, and it's not about something fairly trivial that girls care about. Mm -hmm. But even if you expand outside of that, you have, like, St. Elmo's Fire, which is mostly men. Mm -hmm. It's mostly a Brat Pack movie with, like, two-thirds of the Caspian dudes. Mm -hmm. And then you get, like... Just one of the guys, which is technically about a girl, but a girl in drag. Mm-hmm. You get Tomboy with Betsy Russell,
2: mm-hmm. which is
1: about a tomboy. <laughs> you get Legend of Billie Jean, where she's doing like action stuff and has a short tomboyish haircut.
0: Yeah, she's she's being one of the guys. Yes.
1: And then you have girls just want to have fun as <laughs> like an outlier.
0: And that movie is like kind of panned by a lot of people and people consider it like a cult hit because that movie's not actually good. No one actually likes it. Mm-hmm. I really like that movie. We'll talk about it one day. Yeah. Um. But oh, that what a weird thing to point out.
1: Yeah, it's we see this a lot more towards the end of the decade where we again veer away from female-led teen films and start to just be like, no, the Corys are here. Mm-hmm. No, Cusack's here. No, like, just selling, you know, cute, dreamy boys to girls rather than giving them specific, like, hit films about girls. Because mm-hmm. it's more about the romance and the cute boy you can sell rather than actual,
0: like, female-led stories. That's, that's a really, really good point. Um, on that note, something that Mike McPadden brings up in the book that I think is really interesting Is, uh, you know, he talks about the way that people, you know, shit on John Hughes for the things that he did wrong, which uh, of course you Mm -hmm. should. But he says, you know, 16 candles and weird science may have utilized dominant genre tools such as nudity and racial humor. But for Hughes, lowball tricks like that must have been the price of doing business. Because make no mistake, that guy was into the breakfast club as a business. And it's a really interesting way to put that out there because this is the movie he always wanted to make. Mm -hmm. This is the movie he really felt passionate about and he couldn't do that until he made 16 Candles which does have a lot of fucking problems in it. Like there's a good movie trapped in like terrible sex comedy conventions in Mm -hmm. there and so it kind of makes me recontextualize that movie a little bit. Like it, those problems don't magically go away just because but I you don't can f-
1: understand them. Yeah,
0: but I understand why they're there more. Well,
1: John Hughes came up through National Lampoon, right? Which was not exactly like a classy establishment for comedy. <laughs> no, uh,
0: there definitely a lot of brilliant people came out of National well, Lampoon. But, but let's not like the
1: specific product <laughs> they were selling was like booger picking boy humor.
0: But <laughs> you're not wrong. Like, that's 100% correct. And I think that Sixteen Candles reflects a lot of that, especially with Anthony Michael Hall. Um, And, you know, we get to see him back in this movie playing another type of nerd, but a more well-rounded, more in-depth nerd, which He's I really quite good. like. Um, I
1: mean, everybody in this movie is good. You have to be good. It's a cast of seven people.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it really is.
1: You have like a blink and you'll miss it. John Hughes cameo where he has no dialogue, a couple parents. But yeah, it's just the five kids, vice principal and janitor. That's the movie.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And before we dive in any deeper, it is time for everyone's favorite part of the show.
1: We're in the heart of summer prom party, and hopefully you all are all surviving. We're, we're doing our best over here, consistently having to record without the air on <laughs> in Los Angeles. It is, it is a lot. But we got some really fun stuff over on the Patreon for you to be excited about this month. Speaking of unbearable heat and no relief from it, for our Sadie Hawkins dance, we're covering a suggestion box film from a number of people. We're doing Holes. And a, a personal favorite from my neck of the woods, Tommy Boy. So we're talking about a, a b- boyish man in that one. For our musical milestones, we are going to be covering 90s Eurodance and Europop as filtered through, like, us filthy Americans, where we really just got, like, the cream of the crop over here. And this may or may not be inspired specifically by Barbie Girl. And we're making up for some lost time because we got... Uh, We got caught with the COVID finally in the back part of July, and you're gonna get two episodes of us covering the total six episodes from the start of my so called life. You're also gonna get a double dose of BJ's monthly newsletter to make up for us being too sick to do it last month, as well as the one for this month. In addition to all that, you'll get my fun indie playlist. As well as access to the suggestion box where you can go ahead and throw in your own suggestions, either for the Sadie Hawkins dance, the main show, or anything else. With this being August, it is officially going to be three whole years of this ends at prom, and we truly could not have done it without all of you. We even bought new microphones to celebrate, and hopefully we sound way better to your your ears. As always, if you're not able to financially support the podcast in any way, the best thing you can possibly do to support us is recommend us to a friend, rate, review, do all do all that fun stuff. Thank you all so much. And now back to the movie.
0: Alrighty. So this is obviously an ensemble cast, and there's some fun things that I would love to share about said ensemble cast. So Molly Ringwald playing Claire. In Claire, Claire—it's a fat girl's name, you you know. Um, but <laughs> but Molly Ringwald was originally not supposed to play Claire; she was supposed to play Allison.
1: That would have been a weird color on her.
0: I agree. I think it would have been a very strange choice, but she really pushed because she wanted to play Claire. And a big part of that is because Molly Ringwald had sort of established herself as like the girl next door uh-huh. or the girl that's forgotten. Like her breakthrough role, they literally forget her birthday. So she
1: wanted to be the popular girl in school? Cause, yes. Like it's, it is kind of a thing to think about that – Molly Ringwald characters are all similar because they're all Molly. Mm -hmm. But they are different characters in the John Mm -hmm. Hughes films.
0: They're very different characters. And I like that she pushed for this. Because I think currently today, it's hard for people to think of Molly Ringwald as kind of like the underdog girl next door type because she played Claire. But this was her playing against type, mm-hmm. which I find fascinating. And I really, really like that. Um, then we also have Emilio Estevez as Andrew. He was not supposed to play Andrew. He was supposed to play Bender. Wouldn't have been a good look on him either. It, it really would not have worked. No. It, like I, I
1: think Emilio Estevez could be like a criminal, but also he's got like short guy energy in this yes because both of the other dudes in the cast are much taller than him and like i think that helps for like his wrestler thing also if he's short he has a lower center of gravity so he's a better wrestler but like (laughs) also i I think that uh it ties into him having this like you gotta win inferiority complex like to his Mm -hmm. dad i think that works but like you you need judd nelson here
0: yeah he's such
1: he's such a fucking force in this movie it has to be him
0: and what's so fascinating is so Emilio Estevez ended up being recast because they just they couldn't find an Andrew mm-hmm. that's where they were struggling and i'm right there with you i think that he's the perfect andrew because you know, we find out that he doesn't actually like wrestling. So to me, this feels like a father who wanted their son to be successful in sports. He's not tall enough to play basketball. He's not big enough to play football. Mm-hmm. What are they going to do? Oh, he has got a, he's short. He's got a low center of gravity. We're going put him, to put him in wrestling. Yep. So that, like, it all tracks. It makes total sense. Um, so when they recast him, that obviously opened the doors for Bender. And here are some of the people who auditioned and were considered. Alan Ruck. Uh, Cameron no. Fry, you know, no, that,
1: I, I don't think that's right.
0: <laughs> no. Uh, and this is eventually how he gets the role of Cameron because the breakfast club and Ferris Bueller's day off. Um, many of the scenes were shot pretty much concurrently mm-hmm. to save money. So this is how he ended up playing Cameron and thank God for that because Cameron Fry is the single best character John Hughes has ever written uh, for, from teens. I should say Nicholas Cage.
1: That would have been awesome. And I think he could have done it. Mm hmm but I still don't want it.
0: I agree because I feel like it would have been too similar to Randy in Valley Girl. Yeah. And so that wouldn't have worked. And the person who was actually cast before they inevitably replaced him shortly before filming, John Cusack. I no.
1: Cusack can't play tough guy.
0: And that's exactly why he ended up getting <laughs> recast cuz Hughes was like he's he's not intimidating looking. He's John Cusack. Like yeah. it's not happening.
1: I'm legitimately racking my brain right now to try and think of the toughest role that sex ever played. Is it Conair?
0: <laughs> Maybe. Maybe Conair. <laughs> Maybe, I don't, I don't even he know. He shouts
1: a lot in that one, so like maybe that makes him tough. I don't know.
0: <laughs> and so obviously he then gets replaced with Judd Nelson, and Judd Nelson is also noticeably much older than the rest of the cast. One he could was, assume
1: he's been held back, but Judd Nelson's <laughs> definitely too old. But yeah, like, he's, it's the 80s, that's kind of the story for everybody.
0: Exactly. So yeah, he's in his mid-20s uh, playing a high schooler. He's he's a lot older. Um, but Judd Nelson in this movie is so unfucking believably good. He has to be. He, he, he does. He has to be good. He's the leader. Yeah. Um. He. Oh my god. He's so incredible. Uh. So then they. You know. Obviously, Allison gets played by Ali Sheedy, and then Anthony Michael Hall once again plays Brian. Mm-hmm. He, there, there's just no way he was not going to. Um. So these are our our five archetypes, and it's very important to point out that they are playing archetypes and not stereotypes, mm-hmm. because they all fall into their respective groups. But none of them are one-dimensional. These are all very fully realized human beings.
1: Yeah. And I honestly, this is something I really appreciated as the movie went on. Because, like, I know what happens. I know exactly, like, the beats. But the way this movie actually, like, delivers information Mm -hmm. piece by piece. You get little glimpses into, like, how someone actually feels. You start to see, like, what's going on behind their eyes in certain scenes. And... It's really good. Like, it's really smart about making these more fleshed out characters, especially because, like, you think of The Karate Kid and how The Karate Kid is the most cliched film you can think of. But it wasn't cliched at the time. Mm -hmm. Everyone has just taken everything from The Karate Kid, and now it feels really cliched. Mm -hmm. These characters feel so cliched because everyone goes, man, those were really good characters. Let's just borrow that.
0: Yeah absolutely and the thing that's lost whenever people do that is that three-dimensionality because yeah andrew is a jock but he's also dealing with like so much pressure at home and insecurity and he's just miserable and obviously we have the the criminal the bully character He's coming from an abusive household. Like it's he's not being a bully because he feels like it. Mm-hmm. He's being abused. He's having a problem.
1: Yeah, like the the principal in this movie is the physical embodiment of what would be a villain mm-hmm. and he he is a bad dude. But like if you expand out from that, one of the villains is the parents.
0: Yeah. So The Breakfast Club as a movie in my opinion is very anti-establishment and also kind of Mm -hmm. anti-parent. And it's not anti-parent as in like, you know, parents are the worst thing in the world, but it is anti-parent in the sense that a lot of the problems a lot of us have, especially when we're teenagers, are because our parents suck at their jobs. When
1: you grow up, your heart dies.
0: Yes. Like, and people have pointed to that line as like her being a melodramatic teen. No. But I think that there's some truth to that. Well, of course. Like, when you
1: grow up, like, you have to make certain concessions about your dreams, about what you can afford, about like whether you have the time to even do the things you're passionate about because like, You got to make rent. It's fucking hard out there. Like there's a lot of circumstances that get in the way of using your heart and following your dreams because now you have pressure because if you Mm -hmm. fuck up, you lose your car, you lose your apartment, you lose everything.
0: Absolutely. And I think that there is a reflection to that where the movie does point out the ways in which these parents are also kind of trapped in the circumstances Because the movie does point out, I think, with Brian especially, like the pressure that he's getting from mom to have good grades very much feels like it is rooted in you have to get a scholarship to go to college or your life's gonna be over because we can't fucking afford to send you to college. Mm -hmm. Like that's the energy that I've always gotten from her, where all you would have to do is like communicate that effectively with your kids. Like don't just randomly harass and like emotionally abuse them without telling them like what's going on. like Don't do it in general, but there's a big difference between a parent putting so much pressure on their kids to succeed and, and perform well because in your mind, this is the only way they're going to go to college. This is the only way they're going to have a good life. This is the only way they're going to succeed because we can't afford this. We can't give it to them. So you've got to put all this pressure on them. Don't do that. Just have the conversation and be like, hey, here's the deal. Life is hard. It's a lot easier if you do X, Y, or Z thing. We cannot financially do that, so please work hard, try your best, earn that scholarship and if you don't, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it, but this is the reality of our lives and our circumstances because I don't I don't know why parents don't want to just be transparent with their fucking kids.
1: Yeah, I mean, you could say that like you're you're being a little more generous than I am with those parents. I think that they instill in their kids that they have to succeed from an early age as we see from the sister who has One line in this movie and gets so much heat from me. Yeah. Yeah. Like she is just agreeing with mom being like, yeah, you little fuck up. Get in there and study. Don't be such a fuck up. And the sister's like, yeah. How would
0: you feel if I told you that that's actually Anthony Michael Hall's mom and sister? I
1: mean, (laughs) the familial energy comes across wrong. But, like, oh, that little sister gets so much heat with me. (laughs) It's not her fault. She Basically, from, like, birth, she's seen how, like, those parents treat people, especially, like, her older brother. So, like, she knows what the deal is. Definitely.
0: And I think uh, this is a a little bit of a confession hour here. I think the reason that Brian's mom specifically, like it resonates with me on on a deep level is because I was very lucky and I've talked about it many, many times in the show. I'm very lucky to have supportive, caring, loving parents. They did have their missteps. Mm -hmm. Academic excellence is one of their missteps. The amount of pressure they put on me as a child, like, why why were you a goth Tracy Flick, BJ? I don't know, because it was instilled in me from birth that I was going to be a fucking failure living on the streets if I didn't go to college and we didn't have the money for college, so I needed to earn scholarships, which meant I had to be academic excellence, I had to be in every single organization to make my resume and my transcripts look as good as humanly possible. I needed to do all of that because otherwise I was going to be stuck in my dead end fucking town. And that was the message I got my entire life. And it wasn't until like, I don't know, junior year of high school that they finally were like, you know that we put this much pressure on you because we want you to succeed. And we can't give this to you the way that your friend's parents can. That's why we've been so hard on you. And it's like, I wish I would have known that when I was 10 I, I think
1: that, like, for me, knowing that, like, John Hughes loves uh, suburban, wealthy Chicago. Mm-hmm. That's his favorite version of Chicago. Those are his favorite kids to yeah, focus Yeah,
0: dude on. lived in Lake Forest uh, towards the end of his life. And if you don't know anything about Lake Forest, um, at one point, Lake Forest was the only place in America that had a McDonald's that didn't have tall, golden arches. They were, like, low to the ground because we don't want to attract that kind of people. Oh. Lovely. Yeah, that's the kind of place he's
1: from. It's like uh, like that McDonald's in what is it, Strongsville? That's in like an in Ohio old Ohio. That's in a bank, so it's like a two-story McDonald's with fucking like Greek pillars.
0: Yes, it's so weird. <laughs> yeah, it's,
1: it's, uh, it's a fucking nice McDonald's, aren't it? It but, is. It's really fancy looking. But like, I think that there adds something to this where, like, obviously we can say what we know about John Hughes and his conservatism, but like, the parents are the villains, and they're from a conservative, wealthy part of Chicago. Mm-hmm. So what's that say about rebelling against Reaganism in the actual story itself?
0: Right, and there's a lot of things sprinkled throughout that are kind of pushing against this idea of like a meritocracy and about how the things that you do as a teenager don't really matter. I mean, we have Carl the Janitor Mm -hmm. who is, like kind of the unsung hero of this movie in well, my opinion. Someone
1: has to be the unsung hero. Seven people in the cast.
0: <laughs> uh, I love him dearly, but there's the, the backstory that when he was in high school, he was man of the year. He was big man on campus. He was the superstar. And now he's still at his old high school and he's the janitor. And what's interesting is that the movie doesn't like really moralize it as like, this is a failure. Or like, Oh, he just totally fell from grace. Like other people do like cuz this movie is also about like projection and the mm-hmm. things that we project onto people oh, based Bender on. Bender tries to do that. Yeah, Bender does he like he also makes fun of Brian by saying like oh your dad works here to be like uh, your dad's the janitor like to just like shit on his his job. Mm-hmm. But it's clear that Carl, like, isn't unhappy with his lot in life. He's like, yeah, shit happened. This is where I am. This is what I do. This is my job. Yeah, it's not what I dreamed of, but, like, it's fine. I'm making lemonade out of the situation. Yeah, He's finding the joy where he can, and I think that that's really interesting, and at the same time, the movie is saying, like, yeah, the most popular person in school can also grow up to be a fucking janitor. Like, what we do as teenagers can influence the people we become, but it also doesn't fucking matter a lot of the times. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: What did you want to be when you were young? When I was a kid, I wanted to be John Lennon. Carl, don't be a goof. I'm trying to make a serious point here. Carl, I've been teaching for 22 years. And each year, these kids get more and more arrogant. Oh, bullshit, man. Come on, Vern. The kids haven't changed. You have. You took a teaching position because you thought it'd be fun, right? Thought you could have summer vacations off. And then you found out it was actually work. That really bummed you out. These kids turned on me. They think I'm a big fucking joke. Come on. Listen, Vern, if you were 16, what would you think of you, huh? Hey, Carl, you think I give one rat's ass what these kids think of me? Yes, I do. You think about this. When you get old, these kids, when I get old, they're going to be running the country. Yeah. Now, this is the thought that wakes me up in the middle of the night. That when I get older, these kids are going to take care of me. I wouldn't count on it.
0: And then, so we also have Principal Vernon, who's the other like adult figure in here, and... Principal Vernon speaks to me on a few levels. One, um, he's obviously a villain. Like, he might as well be a prison warden. We're going to talk about this being a prison movie Mm -hmm. a little bit later. But he might as well be a prison warden. Um, He talks the way my dad talks, which I have an affinity for. um, Because I think knowing this character existed also took a little bit of the sting out of my dad's attempts at, like, disciplining me if that makes sense Mm -hmm. because like he would get really serious with me and I would just be like you're like the principal in the breakfast club
1: this is the bull you get the horns
0: (laughs) right Um, but I love the conversations that he has with Carl where he says things like you know oh kids today like they're They're different. They're worse than when we were kids. Disrespectful. And he's he's like, no, they're not. You changed. Like, kids are the same. You're the one who changed.
1: Kids are the same pieces of shit they've always been.
0: Exactly. And I love that so much because I think that is something that even I have to, like, check myself on now that I'm getting into my 30s. And obviously we share the same Internet as teenagers. And sometimes I'm like, God, these fucking kids, like, I was never like this. And then I sit back and it's like, no, I was. I was just a different flavor of this. Yeah, you
1: were a piece of shit in a different way.
0: Yeah. We were all pieces of shit, just different flavors of shittery.
1: Yeah, but like when you're a teen, you're the oldest you've ever been, so you're the wisest you've ever been. So you think that like you're the fucking smartest motherfucker in the universe. Mm-hmm. That's just how it is. Like, that's what this movie does really well. And um, like it's about not um assuming you understand someone. Mm-hmm. It's about not uh, like pigeonholing someone or guessing that you know that you're right. When it comes to like Vice Principal Vernon, he is actually right more often than not mm-hmm. about certain things. Mm-hmm. But he's right enough that he feels really fucking justified in doing all the things that he's a bastard about mm-hmm. where he can just look at things being like yeah Bender you're afraid that your life's gonna be a piece of shit now I'm actually upsetting you and you're gonna cry mm-hmm. no he he's right about that
0: he is right about that he found that kid's insecurity and is weaponizing the fuck out of it
1: yeah but then he's just like cool I feel justified right now
0: mm-hmm. like
1: I feel more powerful than you and I have found exactly where I can pick at you and fucking ruin you for the next like eight Saturdays right and also, I can be as mean as I want to you because nobody is gonna argue with me.
0: Right. Like the thing is, like he's right in all of like the things that he's saying. That doesn't make he's what not he's doing ethical, morally right, right.
1: But he's right, and like that's something that I think this movie does very, very well. Is that every character is right? Yeah. All of them are right. Does it mean that they're correct? Does it mean they should be right? Mm-hmm. No but all of them in their own perspectives and in their own ways are right.
0: You and I have this discussion a lot off mic about this idea of understanding and accepting the way the world is versus looking at it through an idealized lens. Oh, the world
1: is not idealized and accepting and expecting it to be is uh, very fucking foolish. Yeah. Like generously, you can say like, well, John Hughes shouldn't have included like gay or Anthony Michael Hall putting on a black set again in this movie. And I go, he shouldn't have. But also, that's absolutely a thing that high school boys do. So say what you will about authenticity.
0: Right. And again, it's not saying that it is the right or proper thing to do or that it is encouraging behavior. It is saying this is how... It was back then and it's shitty. And it
1: was for several more decades. And
0: yeah, and it's shitty. And like, it's allowed to be shitty. Things are allowed to be shitty. Mm-hmm. A big problem that we've been getting into is that we've gotten so afraid of acknowledging how fucking shitty things are that now we don't know how to deal with the reality that things are shitty. <laughs>
1: well, like, the, the problem that you have with people who can acknowledge that something sucks or acknowledge that something's wrong is you bring attention to it. But then they go, well, my work here is done because mm-hmm. they don't know any other way of fixing things and they feel kind of powerless.
0: Yeah. And not only that, this movie is also about the ways that we end up falling into these groups sort of as, like, defense mechanisms or safety. Oh, yeah, I mean, we're pack animals. Right. And when you're in the, you know, quote-unquote wild of a high school, you have to figure out where you can fit just to get through it. And with that comes a lot of assumptions. We even see those assumptions on display with the ways that Principal Vernon treats the kids. Like, he is so immediately hostile towards Bender because he views him as lesser than, he views him as a criminal, mm-hmm. and he feels justified in being shitty to him mm-hmm. because he's, quote-unquote, a bad kid. And then you see him, like, you know, he he has a, a sense of reverence for someone like Andrew, even though Andrew is also there for detention. Like, he also did a bad thing, but he's like, nope, uh, you're my guy. You go fix the, the door with the screws. Well, I mean...
1: Guy, boys will be boys. Right. You know, you can't punish a guy for one mistake he made in high school.
0: Right. He's very much got that energy towards Andrew. He's also, like, very kind to Claire because she is somebody who comes from a lot of wealth and she's, like, a pretty popular He's girl. He's kind to
1: the people who aren't fucking headaches for him. Yes. It's basically, like, this transactional thing of, like, I will give you kindness if you give me obedience.
0: Yes. And then he ignores Allison because everybody does because that's how the world treats the outsider-type characters of like, I don't understand you, so I'm just not even gonna engage. Like, that's very much how he treats her. And then when he gets to Brian, he's obviously, like, semi-kind to Brian because, oh, he's a good student. You know, that's a good thing. that That's a, that's a positive quality. But he's also still very dismissive to him because he's still a fucking nerd. Like, <laughs> like that's the energy he brings to him. And it's a reminder That even as we get older, the assessment of high school clickery, I guess is the word that I'll use for this, sort of doesn't go away even as you're an adult. It it just evolves in a different way. Like, think about how when you're an adult and say you're at like a dinner party or something, I don't know, some sort of organization, somebody's birthday, and you're meeting a bunch of people that you don't know. You're schmoozing. You're schmoozing. Some of the first questions that you ask people are like, So, what do you do for a living? And the amount of preconceived notions that are attached to what someone does for a living is just high school cliques as adulthood. Because mm-hmm. if I ask you, Harmony, somebody in your 30s, what do you do for a living? And you say, I'm a bartender. People are going to go, what the fuck is a 30-year-old doing as a bartender because they imagine people who do bartending are doing it like when they're in college or it's a stopgap to something else because mm-hmm. our society doesn't understand that there are people who are career bartenders. Yeah.
1: I mean, I've spent my entire adult life getting ending up in places I don't want to be that involves some level of schmoozing mm-hmm. and people go like, "Oh, what do you do?" And I go, "Oh, I I buy and sell vintage stuff." And they go, "Oh, <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's like nobody ever knows what to say about my fucking jobs. Right, did, like they are a chaotic resume of things that are, don't really click together very well until we settled into where we are now. But yeah, I hate that stuff. It feels very much like the uh, a slightly more personal way of talking about the weather. In terms Mm -hmm. of small talk where it's like, everyone can talk about the weather or the local sports team or like, man, that traffic today sure was rough, but that you're not saying anything and it doesn't fucking matter. Mm -hmm. You just don't want to sit in silence so you're having some vague semblance of a conversation with a human. This is like, ah, well, we're supposed to be getting to know each other a little bit more at this cocktail hour, so I'm going to talk to you about this thing that actually I'm going to make a lot of assumptions and decide whether or not I want to be around you for the rest of the night.
0: Yeah, and that's exactly what's happening, which is so weird, is like we're figuring out Where you fit in the hierarchy, because that's what we do in high school. What can you do for me? Yeah, what can you do for me? Are you a cool person to hang out with? Are you a cool person for me to be around? Are you somebody I'm supposed to be admiring or somebody that I can look down upon and talk shit about later Mm -hmm. with my friends? Yeah. Like that is what we're doing when we ask these sorts of questions, whether we realize it or not. And it's so fascinating to see this exchange between the students and the adults, because they do the same thing. Like they make all the assumptions about Carl because he's a janitor. They make all these assumptions about like who who Vice Principal Vernon is because he's their vice principal when like they don't know that he's in his office like putting orange rinds in his mouth and making st- stupid faces because mm-hmm. it makes him laugh. Like that's a side of him that they do not experience. And it it's just such a good movie at reminding you that you are only ever seeing One, a fraction of a human being. And two, you're also not seeing why they got there or why they are the way that they are. Is this persona that they're showing you? Is this who they really are? Or is this a a survival tactic? Like, we don't
1: know. Survival really is like the name of the game here because that's high school. You're just trying to get through until, you know, you go on to your next thing. But... It's this is just a movie about teaching teens to be empathetic during an mm-hmm. era when you're not rewarded for being empathetic, especially if like you're a dude that's like, "Ha, oh, you have feelings, you care about that person that like is crying, fuck you, you fag." Right. Like that that's the way it is. And something that I actually want to want to talk about as far as like teens experiencing this film is concerned is that this is a rated R movie.
0: Yes. This movie is rated R for language and for pot and for that a little, weird... little bit of
1: sexual content. Weird
0: fucking sexual situation. Mostly, mostly the language. Mostly language. But yeah, this is a rated R movie. And this never gets discussed as a rated R movie mm-hmm. because it feels like such a seminal hangout movie, which, I mean, it is. But yeah, this is a rated R movie.
1: Yeah. I, I see people bring this up pretty routinely in horror spheres about like PG-13 versus rated R. And one of the ones they always fucking reference is like, oh, well, The Craft is rated R. And it was the first time like teens were really getting like high school rated R films. It's one of the first things that does this and that. And I'm like, yeah, sure. That's all true. Breakfast Club is also rated R. Right. It's a different kind of rated R movie, but still.
0: It's still rated R. Mm-hmm. This is still a movie that you had to be 17 to see in theaters.
1: And also like. I think it helps that this played a lot on TV and also the mid 80s is when you saw the rise of video rentals becoming Mm -hmm. extremely popular. But with how mean this movie is and how mean they all are to each other, it has to be rated R. Like you can't have them get away with like a single fuck in this movie. There needs to be a number of them. They need Mm -hmm. to call each other like cocksuckers and bitches and just like all of the meanest fucking insults because they are flipping on a dime.
0: Exactly. And they're not, for the most part, they're not around adults. Mm -hmm. So you're hearing teenagers communicate with each other unfiltered, which means there's a lot of swearing happening. Mm -hmm. If it didn't have that, it wouldn't feel real.
1: It would feel like what the stereotype of a John Hughes movie is.
0: Mm hmm. And part of that is why this film was immediately loved. Like, The Breakfast Club is not like a Heathers where it didn't do well and then it gained popularity. The Breakfast Club was always popular. This movie had a million-dollar budget. and ended up bringing $51 million, which was kind of unheard of at the time, especially for a teen movie. But uh, as Mike McPadden says... With Hugh so drastically stacking the deck in favor of teenagers versus the whole big bad adult world, with Sheedy even emoting when you grow up your heart dies, the Breakfast Club connected soul deep with young audiences. And how could it not? Teens initially packed theaters to experience the Breakfast Club multiple times, then they watched and rewatched it at home so they would never ever forget how powerfully it moved them. Kids of a certain age grew up with their hearts on loan to hard scrabble Judd Nelson, bemoaning the carton of cigarettes he got for Christmas from his abusive dad. The old man grabbed me and said, hey, smoke up, Johnny. Puke. That complaint does beat Ferris Bueller's birthday lamentation of, I wanted a car. They got me a computer.
1: Mm-hmm. And like Ferris Bueller, also a very, very good film that we properly rewatched recently just because it was on Pluto, but like... That's a fantasy, man.
0: Yeah. Ferris Bueller's a fantasy. This is real.
1: Like, there's a couple, like, tiny set pieces in this movie that make me go, oh, what? And it's probably designed for the trailer or just a little bit of levity. But, like, him falling through the ceiling or, Mm -hmm. like, Emilio Estevez screaming so loud he shatters glass. Like, these little moments that feel like, this feels slightly out of place in this movie. Mm -hmm. But I I think they're just there because you need some teen convention either from marketing or out of expectation.
0: And so... Those moments that you're talking about do feel very like teen convention, like, you know, the, the dance sequence in the library that feels very like teen mm-hmm. convention. Um, but I think part of why The Breakfast Club is a movie that has stood the test of time and has remained as popular as it can be is because the films that it borrows from are decidedly adult Films, mm-hmm. they are not teen movies because we didn't really have a teen movie formula yet. Like, we were still this is working still in the start it.
1: of the teen movie formula, certainly outside of sex comedies.
0: Yeah, like we had Fast Times at Ridgemont High at this point, we had American Graffiti, Rebel Without a Cause, like we had those types of movies, but we didn't have like the those tried, are isolated
1: incidents. Yeah, basically. we didn't have the
0: tried and true formula yet because. John Hughes is the one who's going to fucking perfect it. um, And he's going to kind of do it with this movie. But there are two very adult types of movies that The Breakfast Club uh, is sort of honoring. The first one is the most obvious, which is just uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Mm. Um, The Breakfast Club and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf share the fact that it's really one location. It's just a couple of hours of experience. The difference being is that in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? These are adults. Talking about how, like, their life is fucked up and, like, how things are terrible, and boy, does that suck. Mm -hmm. In the breakfast club, it's teenagers talking about how life sucks right now, but they are still weirdly optimistic towards the future, even though the fear of becoming their parents, the people who have royally fucked them up, like, that threat is always there but they know they have not become their parents yet so there's still hope.
1: It's it's one Saturday where you feel a little bit of warmth even though yeah. you got to go back to school in 2 days. Yeah.
0: <laughs> like that's definitely part of it. And so that convention being adult, I think even subconsciously like we we watch this movie and it feels like something that's very mature it feels something that is very adult Mm -hmm. Um, and then the other kids seriously yeah it takes them seriously and it takes their problems seriously and it doesn't talk down to them ever Um, so it has this feeling that is very adult that we're not very used to the other thing is that The Breakfast Club is a prison escape movie (laughs) um it just is mm-hmm. uh, you think about the ways that this movie resembles uh, a prison escape movie uh, Shermer High School is very boxy it's very uh, gray on the outside it's, it looks very much like a prison when they are running through the halls they are literally trapped behind bars because you have the the grates that are down the hallway so people can't be running through the hallways mm-hmm. so they're literally behind bars um, you have the vice principal who's treating them like a warden um, at one point to kind of like quell possible rebellion he takes the leader aka bender and throws him in fucking solitary by isolating him from everybody else uh you know bender's going through the air vents which might as well be somebody crawling through prison tunnels like it's not subtle and it's so not subtle that when they're killing time they are humming the song from bridge on the river kwai like the doo-doo You mean that
1: song from Little Rascals? Okay, it
0: is also in the Little Rascals. (laughs) Yes, Um, but like that song became like is most well known for a fucking like prison camp war movie, and I think that that is such a smart choice for a movie about high school, which for a lot of kids does feel like a prison. Dude,
1: school is prison
0: because whether training
1: you to go to prison or it's training you to go into military or be a factory worker. Right. Those are your three options in terms of how schools are set up.
0: Right. Like, we're lucky that it's starting to finally change, but especially in the 80s, it definitely, because we were not having, like, social-emotional learning. We weren't having classrooms where people sat in circles yet. We were still very regimented, sit straight, sit in a row, sit down, shut up, face forward. Even, like,
1: Ferris Bueller. It's all about escaping it and having, like, the fantasy of what it's not like and showing you just how fucking dreadful and miserable everyone is in school.
0: Mm. Absolutely. And so this movie is very much also about that. And it's also about the like, it's the different prisons that we are trapped within. Mm -hmm. We are trapped in the physical prison of a school. We are trapped in the prison of the high school hierarchy that puts us into these different archetypal groups. We're trapped in the prisons of our own lives as teenagers because we have to deal with the parents and we feel very claustrophobic. And eventually, we all kind of fucking snap Mm -hmm. because we don't also have the tools. to deal with it because it's hard and it's scary and it's frustrating. And you're, you're not old enough to be taken seriously, but you're too young to get away with things out of like the innocence of youth. Well, as a, as a
1: teenager, you have no experience dealing with this stuff before. So you have no idea what you're doing. So just a bunch of people making it up as they go along. Um, Something that I think is, is really interesting to think about as I reflect on this. So we did dirty dancing, I think last year and I remember watching it and being fucking blown away because everyone had given these like surface level interpretations of what is going on in that story. And that like Swayze a creep and he wasn't mm-hmm. like y'all need to just chill the fuck out. It felt like um, 2000s and early 2010s era, like people sharing Facebook member this stuff around or people having like. Uh, a reappraisal that they would have on like some trying to be smart, like the writers at crack.com and they were not that smart, Mm -hmm. but everyone always would defer to these characters with like extremely simple interpretations and they would moralize characters in certain ways where it's like Bender's clearly the villain actually. And um, he shouldn't be mean to Molly Ringwald. And I'm like, he shouldn't be mean to Molly Ringwald. But do you forget, she is also a bad person.
0: All of them are. They're just all kind of awful in different ways. But their awfulness is not irredeemable. Like, that's the important thing They're young enough
1: they can still fucking turn a corner. Like, they haven't done anything that is going to set them off in a a path where they cannot be redeemed. Mm -hmm. Like, even to the point of Brian bringing a flare gun to school. Mm -hmm. Because, dude, did not... Think things through, I guess, in terms of how he was gonna shoot himself with a flare gun. But yeah, like if you, this is obviously very pre Columbine, but if you bring a gun to school, an actual one, that's gonna set things off in a way that you can't be redeemed. Right.
0: And okay, I wanna talk about the flare gun for a half second, because obviously, like, we learn that confession in a deeply emotional part of this movie. Mm -hmm. Like, he is in tears you know, Andrew's talking about how miserable he is. Claire's talking about how miserable she is. Everyone's talking about like how fucked up their lives actually are. And Brian basically is like, I was going to kill myself with a flare gun. And then it went off in my locker. The visual of a flare gun going off in a locker is so fucking funny to me. Yeah,
1: we get like the the very start of the uh, movie. We see like you know scenes of the school, and we see like everything that burned down in his locker. Right,
0: like it's not like it's not a funny situation. Like it's deeply know, all upsetting. But like you have to kind just, of laugh at the, the ridiculousness like, of you're it. You're gonna
1: shoot yourself with a flare gun?
0: Well, it makes me think about that one time where this is gonna get dark, and I'm sorry. But I was feeling particularly uh, sewer slidel uh, a few years back, and it was during Lent. Oh, and you
1: were going to gonna
0: off yourself with a fish filet? It's a filet of fish. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank I don't you. shop at
1: McDanger's as much as you. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, I was feeling particularly bad, and since I'm deathly allergic to fish, I was like, what if I just bought a filet of fish and ate it and then <laughs> died? And then it was like, wait, that would be so embarrassing, cause of death mcdonald's filet of fish like look i have no problem being a fat bastard but like that's that's too far for me that can't be how i go out
1: now and also no one will think that that's the murder weapon they'll just be like i don't know i guess she just thought it was a chicken sandwich and bit into it and then just she was so fat she just kept eating it and didn't <laughs> taste it and then died
0: right <laughs> just me being are s- you even
1: tasting the food or are you just inhaling it
0: <laughs> Like, me being suicidal is not funny. Me having the thought process of dying by suicide by eating a fucking filet of fish. Hilarious. Like, that shit's hilarious. Yeah.
1: Like, okay. But, like, I want want to break down these characters and their shitty situations a Mm -hmm. little bit here. Because I want to start with Bender because he's obviously the leader. He's the most obvious one. Yeah, yeah. So, in terms of school hierarchy and stuff like that. Dude fucks around, like, he breaks the door, he gets weed, he does all these other things, and they just go along with it, and they don't rat him out to the principal, Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, even if they hate each other, especially at the start of this movie, they hate the vice principal more.
0: Absolutely. Solidarity. Exactly. (laughs) And so, like,
1: there's something about that that I really appreciate as, like, an element, Mm -hmm. where it's like, is the enemy of my enemy my friend? In this case, yes. Mm -hmm. But also, like, I, I think about people who... I think they were, like I think I think a lot of people projected onto Bender because he is absolutely like the first fucking, he, he's obviously so cool that guys kind of want to be like him. Like they named Bender from Futurama after him, mm-hmm. but he's also a, a version of like the first shitty boyfriend you have mm-hmm. and how he seems really great. And he's clearly not, mm-hmm. but I think that a lot of women in particular chose Molly Ringwald's side, not because they think she's right because she's clearly like conceited and a, a prima donna and a problem mm-hmm. but because she was at the brunt of John Bender's ire the most mm-hmm. and that means he's a bad guy which means she's a good guy and that's really all there is to it right. I think it's like I, John Bender reminds me of guys I've known that means I'm Molly Ringwald he's a bad guy I'm a good guy totally and this isn't a movie where these five are bad guys and good guys right I know it's
2: kind of a weird time but I was just wondering what is going to happen to us on Monday when we're all together again. I mean, I consider you guys my friends. I'm not wrong, am I? No. So, so on Monday, what happens? Are we so friends, you mean? For friends now, that is? Yeah. You want the truth? Yeah, I want the truth. I don't think so. With all of us, or just John? With all of you. That's a real nice attitude, Claire. Oh, be honest, Andy. If Brian came walking up to you in the hall on Monday, what would you do? I mean, picture this, you're there with all the sports. I know exactly what you'd do. You'd say hi to him, and when he left, you'd cut him all up so your friends wouldn't think that you really liked him. No way. What if I came up to you? The same exact thing. You are a bitch! Why? Because I'm telling the truth? That makes me a bitch? No, because you know how shitty that is to do to someone. And you don't got the balls to stand up to your friends and tell them that you're going to like who you want to like. Okay, what about you, you hypocrite? Why don't you take Allison to one of your heavy metal vomit parties? Or take Brian out to the parking lot at lunch and get higher? What about Andy, for that matter? What about me? What would your friends say if we were walking down the hall together, they'd laugh their asses off. And you'd probably tell them that you were doing it with me so they'd forgive you for being seen with me. Don't you ever talk about my friends. You don't know any of my friends. You don't look at any of my friends. And you certainly wouldn't condescend to speak to any of my friends. So you just stripped to the things that you know. Shopping, nail polish, your father's BMW, and your poor, rich, drunk mother in the Caribbean. Shut up! Okay, and as far as being concerned about what's going to happen when you and I walk down the hallways of school, you can forget it because it's never going to happen. Just bury your head in the sand and wait for your fucking prom. I hate you.
0: Yeah? Good. No, you're absolutely right. And again, that goes back to this whole idea of what you project onto other people based on your own interactions and your own lived experiences. Because the thing is with Bender is like, he puts on this air of like being, you know, unfuckwithable, I don't care, whatever. But then you also look at his costuming he is just swimming in layers of clothing he is under like it's all shells right Mm -hmm. because costuming in this movie very much is its own character um as is the case with any great movie and so the fact that bender is covered in layer upon layer upon layer like that to me signals this guy wants you to think that he's confident, but he is deeply insecure. Oh, yeah. He is deeply unsure of himself. Th- all of this is armor that he is using. So, like, his attitude, he- it's all armor. It's all him trying to build walls around him so that people can't get close.
1: Yeah. Like, you, the, the best scene, I think, in terms of understanding who he is as a person is uh, when he's getting uh, a bunch of additional detentions. Mm-hmm. And, like... Not another teen movie and a bunch of other people make fun of this because it rhymes one time where he rhymes like, no, so, and then people go, oh, it's clearly a comedy.
2: Mm -hmm. It
1: it rhymed once. So it's funny now. Mm -hmm. But like you look at his face and that is a guy who is not being defiant because he wants to be. Mm -hmm. He is in a situation where it's like, all I have is being tough. All I have is my reputation for not giving a fuck. And if I back down. In front of all these people, they do not respect me because I have nothing else. Yep. So you see, like, it, it's, there's a lot of acting behind people's eyes in this movie. And that's why everyone is so fucking good in this. Mm-hmm. Because it, it, there's a lot of concealed information. It's stuff that we get later. Mm-hmm. But you can get inklings of it if you pay attention. Mm-hmm. Really well made. Obvi- obvious filmmaking kind of stuff.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But he's, he's, he's dying inside.
0: Oh, my God. You see yeah. him
1: drowning and fucking Vernon knows it. Mm -hmm. And he just keeps piling it on, going, like, I got all day. I'll keep fucking giving you detentions. I will keep doing it until you eventually break.
0: Mm -hmm. And we see that extended later on when he does put him in, like, solitary, essentially. Mm -hmm. And, again, Prince Vernon, not an ethical guy. Also, though, it's the 80s. I'm not going to say which teacher this was, but my dad and I had uh, a couple teachers that were the same. Like they taught my dad when he was in school, and then they were old as shit by mm-hmm. the time they got to me. And he would warn me, he's like, "That dude's a hard ass. Don't fuck with him. He's a hard ass." And I'm like, "Man, he'll be fine." And my dad was like, "The man hit me with a hockey stick." And I'm like, "What?" And obviously, like there are laws now. You can't do that shit. Mm-hmm. But like that's the environment that he grew up in. Mm-hmm. So again, Vernon doing this is like bullshit. But also, this was not super outside the realm of possibility. Um, So when he finally does interrogate Bender individually. He's basically like, show me how fucking tough you are. Hit me in the face. Like, punch me. Come on, tough guy. Well, and like, Bender has completely... Vernon's not
1: gonna hit him. No,
0: of course not. He's like,
1: give me a reason. Yeah. Give me a reason. Do something.
0: And Bender is like disassociating in that moment. He is staring off. He's not making eye contact. And when he finally does make eye contact, he's horrified. Mm-hmm. And there's... He's showing that vulnerability because there's no one else around him. Yep. He doesn't have to act tough. He can just be like no and like it's the moment like that scene is so important because it's the moment where the film reminds you he's a teenager Mm -hmm. this is a fucking child yep and you know so many people get aged up that come from rough homes or are a little bit rough around the edges we age them up Mm -hmm. all the time because we're like oh well if they're gonna act like this badass and clearly they're old enough to understand the consequences they don't there's mm-hmm. still fucking children he's trying to survive and make it through and as we know he's got a bad fucking home life well as we know as we know Ver- yeah vernon doesn't Vern- give a fuck about vernon what people's homes shit. lives are no. he doesn't
1: care that he got fucking the shit slapped out of him by his dad and that his mom thinks he sucks and he gets burned by cigars and all this shit like mm-hmm. you know we-, we just had a hurricane here in los angeles and everyone was talking about how like <laughs> los angeles people are afraid of rain and it's like No, it's because the city is not designed for rain. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can flood very easily as opposed to like Cleveland, Ohio, where we are very comfortable with rain because everything is built up in a way that it's not going to overflow and cause a huge fucking problem. Right. Like, it's a matter of what you are equipped to deal with. Me? Oh, I can handle cold weather all fucking day. It gets above 80 degrees, I'm sweating. Mm -hmm. Hate it. But we're all built differently and we all have different circumstances. And people like to go, like, that's not bad about things that are like it's kind of like tragedy sparring, but certain people are built to a deal with other things. Like, even when we were in Ohio, Mm -hmm. and you would be like, Oh my god, people are staring at you, and I'd be like, Okay. And you're like, it's upsetting me. And I'm like, Okay. Mm -hmm. Because you're from Chicago. People don't stare and be outright dicks, but I'm like, oh, that's my environment. I grew, I was, I was forged in you these fires. You were forged in
0: this fire. <laughs> like, I can
1: handle this, but you aren't equipped to deal with that. And that's what this fucking movie is about with all these teens and their own different home lives, where it's mm-hmm. like, I think mine sucks, and it's like, is yours worse? Well, it depends on what you're equipped to handle with and how you can deal with this particular thing that's worse. Who's mm-hmm. worse, Brian's home life, where he wants to kill himself, or Bender, where he is lashing out at anything in front of him because that's how he gets by.
0: Exactly. Like this whole movie is just showing that there are different types of shit. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's all awful. It's just a different type of awful. And it does show kind of the fundamental problems that we have in society because we do look at somebody like Brian and we're like, oh, your situation's not as bad versus Bender who's like being outwardly abused by the people in his life. And it's mm-hmm. like they're both being abused here. Like yeah. Brian's being emotionally abused. His parents aren't hitting him but they are making him feel so bad that he wants to put a flare gun in his head. Yeah. Like, that's not good. Well, you can even also just look at, like,
1: the, the, the neutral, I guess, of all of this, which is Ally Sheedy.
0: Oh, Allison.
1: Allison is ignored. Mm-hmm. And to some of them, they're like, oh, that sounds great. But that's neglect. That's neglect. She's being neglected. But that feels like the neutral search situation between, mm-hmm. oh, good loving parents and bad, like, clearly abusive parents. That's the neutral but that's not good. <laughs>
0: yeah. That like because we 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 want things to fit in these nice tight boxes of good, evil, blah blah blah, but that's not how it works. Like it's not linear because Being ignored by your parents to the point where they don't even know where you are on a Saturday and you're going to Saturday detention because you've nothing better to do Mm -hmm. and you can sit in the back of a room and nobody's going to even really notice you're there unless you do something weird as hell, like put pixie sticks and mayonnaise and Captain Crunch on a sandwich Mm -hmm. for people to actually pay attention to you. Like that is a... That is its own type of terrible.
1: Yeah, it's it's death by a thousand cuts. Mm-hmm. It's it's a very slow, painful uh, thing that's gonna that's gonna kill you. Mm-hmm. That's what neglect is. It's not like oh, someone ignored me for like a week. It's like someone ignored you for seventeen years. Yeah, that's that will get you
0: absolutely. And
1: then everyone obviously at school ignores you and all that other stuff. But since since we're talking about Allison, let's talk about the the, the infamous end of this movie because. Mm-hmm. It goes around all the time and mm-hmm. obviously gets put on our radar because we are a teen movie podcast. But anytime someone's like, biggest downgrade in cinema or like, I'll never forgive this movie for this thing where she gets the makeover. Mm-hmm. And I think a thing that people neglect to realize about this movie is that what happens at the end of the movie is not the definite trajectory of where these characters are going to go forever. It's not, you know... Infinite results in that in that direction. It's not the ends of their specific stories. Maybe she just wanted to feel noticed. Mm -hmm. People are going to pay attention to her and not think she's a weirdo. And they're going to go, "Hey, you look nice." Now, granted, you can say what you will about like you know getting Emilio Estevez's attention in this movie because like we need men's attention. That's whole. That's a whole other conversation we can absolutely go into. Mm -hmm. But maybe this is just a thing that she's going to do for now and go I'm going to try to be a girly girl I'm going to take this for a spin even though I like the black shit around my eyes Mm -hmm. and if it doesn't work maybe I'll meet in the middle and I'll learn something from it but people don't want to think about that they just go well this was a fucking tragic blow to goths and weirdos everywhere
0: right and so because I'm very much of two minds about it is that one I think that it set up a type of trope that I'm really uncomfortable with because again, this people took things from this movie and they didn't take all of the right things or they only mm-hmm. took the surface level because then we do see this in one of my all-time favorite movies, The Faculty, where they do turn Clea Duvall into like a lavender cardigan wearing girl and I'm like, Clea Duvall what the straight? fuck? What? What the fuck is that? Right. But I think the situation with Allison is different. Because I agree with you in that I don't think this is forever for her uh, because we even have the line where, you know, she's with Claire and she's like, why are you doing this? And Claire's like, because you're letting me mm-hmm. like so this very much to me feels similarly to how like I would go to sleepovers and like we would give each other makeovers and make each other look different than what we normally look like. Like that was. I'm going like, to
1: dress you in my clothes.
0: Yes, I'm you get gonna dress to see in what my it feel, clothes. feels like to be me. Yeah, like that sort of stuff. Like it's, it's fun and it's explorative. I mean, I did this even as an adult. Uh, shout out to our friend Angie, who I, Angie's a makeup artist, and I would go visit her while she was at work. And I would be like, You do my makeup the way you want to do my makeup, do my eyebrows the way that like look natural and not like I'm Robbie Rotten. Like, <laughs> From Lazytown because that's how I do my eyebrows, and so like I do things like that with her, and it's like a nice bonding experience. But also it's just kind of fun, and I think that yes, the movie does show us Allison through Andrew's eyes of like him looking at her and being like, "Whoa, you're actually like really beautiful." But I think that it's less about like, "Oh, good, now that you're not goth, now you're an acceptable person for me to be interested in." I think it's less that and more like she is now feeling what it. Is like to be noticed for mm-hmm. the first time because what she wears to me also feels like a defense mechanism of like well I'm already invisible I would like to stay invisible mm-hmm. and that's very much what it is but towards the end of this detention she's bonded with them she's made relationships with them she kind of wants to feel something different and what's different for her is being noticed and not being in the shadow. And so they take the shadow off of her. And that's what's happening here. Do I think that it is like they could have made her look like very cool and still goth and what have you? Yeah. Uh, yes, absolutely. Claire doesn't know how to do that. Claire doesn't know how to do that. Claire's lear- doing her makeup the way Claire knows how to do makeup. Correct. That's what we're seeing here. So... I'm very much of two minds about it, of like, it's not my favorite thing of the movie. I think that it could have gone away. But I also don't think that this is how Allison's going to live her life. She's not going to school on Monday looking like a preppy. I don't think so. Some people
1: really dramatize that whole interaction in a way that I feel like is blown out of proportions.
0: Especially because the movie still allows her to be who she is. Because when she kisses Andrew at the end in front of his dad, mind you... She steals a patch off of his Letterman's jacket. Like she's still she, a
1: klepto. She's
0: still a klepto weirdo. She, like, might,
1: she might lie about a lot of things, like being a nymphomaniac, but she's absolutely a klepto.
0: Yeah. So, like, we see her do that, and it's like, okay, yeah, no, she's still a weirdo. Like, they didn't do, change her makeup, and then magically she's going to hang out with Claire on Monday. Like, that's not fucking happening. No, but, like, speak, but, but
1: Monday, though. Like, this movie thinks about the future, and it doesn't give you answers. It proposes... That things might be different. Like, Mm -hmm. there's that whole interaction where.
0: There's, okay, here's the thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be um, unpopular opinion. Claire's fucking right.
1: Claire is right. Like they Again, give this her, is a movie where everyone is right. They give
0: her so much shit when she calls it like it is and is like, that's not going to happen. And the best part is because Bender's the one who's like, you know, really fuck you, you're an asshole. And she's like, oh yeah, what's going to happen when I go by your friends? They're going to laugh their heads off. The,
1: going to take them to your cool metal shows and he's just like, don't talk about my friends and immediately gets defensive rather than yes. answering the question.
0: Yes. Like, so she, she she's, she's fucking right. And I, I realized when i said it so the line in the movie is her saying like they'll laugh their asses off like that's the line the you like t- the tv edit the tv edit where it's the the stank she puts on the word heads molly ringwald has to you know match her mouth with the adr so asses when that open ah turns into head with an h so she goes they'd laugh their heads off and she like sticks it to him with it and it's weird it's like i, I like the tv edit better of that line mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, but no, she's totally right. She's absolutely right. And even after the tension where they're they're kissing and they're doing whatever and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I still am not totally sold that they're going to be super chill with each other. on Monday. Especially
1: now that they're kind of dating. Like what happens? Um Andrew's cool dating this girl around his friends when she looks like this. But what if she decides she doesn't want to look like this anymore? Are they Mm -hmm. still going to be together? Um, Who knows what the fuck's going to happen with, you know, the toxic volatile relationship of uh, Claire and Bender.
0: Right. I mean, and Bender even
1: knows kind
0: of his position because this is not,
1: this is not permanent. This is temporary.
0: You you can get with me
1: to piss your parents off and that's great. But also it's them saying like, we're going to be seen with each other. At least at some point, mm-hmm. And we're not supposed to. Yeah. And that in of itself is a rebellious act in this school.
0: Yeah. And like the fact that she gifts him an earring and it's like a real diamond. Like, But they're a Christmas present. <laughs> like that is kind of like this big thing. And it almost feels like, hey, at least we'll have this. Like, so if things go bad on Monday, we've got this together.
2: Mm-hmm. Then I assume Alice and I are better people than you guys, huh? Us weirdos. Would you do do that to me? I don't have any friends. Well, if you did. No. I don't think the kind of friends I'd have would mind. I just want to tell each of you that I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't and I will not. Because I think that's real shitty. Your friends wouldn't mind because they look up to us. You're so conceited, You're so conceited. You're so like full of yourself. Why are you like that? I'm not saying that to be conceited. I hate it. I hate having to go along with everything my friends say. Then why do you do it? I don't know. I don't... You don't understand. You don't... You're not friends with the same kind of people that Annie and I are friends with. You know, you just don't understand the pressure that they can put on you. I don't understand what? You think I don't understand pressure, Claire?
0: Well, fuck you! Fuck you. Because we get that, you know, iconic shot of Bender, you know, doing the fist pump um, uh, on the football field, which to me, like, again, that's like an escape from prison movie, Mm -hmm. like the I'm free kind of thing. But I also think that that freeze frame reminds me a lot of uh, there's a French movie called The 400 Blows. And it is a very, very bleak coming-of-age film from the 50s. It is sad as shit. It's about an abused child. It's, it's, it's a lot. Um, but it ends with the kid escaping onto the beach and looking into the camera. And it is meant to feel empowering. But at the same time, it kind of leaves you with this thought of like, is that kid actually free or is he going to end up back in that abusive environment? And that's kind of what we get with the breakfast club is it's like Bender feels triumphant. He feels good. He escaped this Saturday. This is great. But what happens on Monday? And he's also got eight more
1: Saturdays. He's
0: got eight more Saturdays. Right. And And this time he
1: won't have friends with him.
0: Yeah. They're not going to be there. And so it's like, what happens next? Like we don't know. And I think that that is also to the benefit of this movie's legacy is that even if we watch this movie and we're like yeah, Breakfast Club freeze frame, you know, the way that it's been parodied so many times mm-hmm. before the movie itself is looking ahead even if we as the audience are not. And I feel like there's like a little thing in the back of our minds when we see this where we're like, yeah, don't you forget about me. Yeah. Even that song like with it. It's 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 a plea. Don't forget about me Mm -hmm. like it is. It's not. Hell, yeah, we did it. We're awesome. It's like, for the love of God, don't forget me. Please don't forget me on Monday.
1: Well, it's like also even even if like they don't stay friends or whatever, it's just remembering the sentiment of that one that one weekend. Mm -hmm. Like carry that with you, Mm -hmm. even if you got to go back to school on Monday, even if you have more detentions, even if, you know, your parents still suck, even if you're still stuck in your clique. You had something real and sincere
2: Mm
1: -hmm. for a a fleeting day. Mm -hmm. Remember something sincere and something warm and a safe place where you could open up to fucking people around you. And sure, they might be a shit about it, but at the end of the day, you all understand each other.
0: Mm -hmm. And I I think that there's... Just fucking human connection, man. There's so much power in that. Real,
1: genuine human connection.
0: Absolutely. And... You know we've been extremely positive this entire podcast, and I don't want to you know dismiss or wash over the aspects of this movie that are not
1: great. Well, no, it's an all white cast. They're mostly rich kids. Like it's, it's it's many John Hughes problems. But where I've settled with John Hughes as a whole is I am not judging this man for what his films are not. Yeah, I'm judging these films for doing exactly what they are trying to do, and for what exactly they are. Which comes with faults that are part of reality. Because guess what? This is what my high school looked like. Our high school wasn't that nice, but it was hella fucking white. Mm-hmm. This is what my high school looked like. This is a form of reality. Mm-hmm. But if you take this at gospel of being like this is the only form of reality, it's not John Hughes' fault per se that every fucking teen film for the next several decades was also an all-white cast.
0: Right. That's a systemic issue. That's not a John Hughes issue.
1: Correct. This is this is a larger issue with the genre, not a specific John Hughes problem.
0: Yeah. And eventually um I want to have uh, Jordan Searless on the podcast, who is a film critic and a podcaster. She did a thread on Twitter a couple weeks ago that was just absolutely masterful, where she was specifically talking about the films of Greta Gerwig and how she, as a black critic, hates this idea that she is supposed to hate Greta Gerwig's movies for being so white, where she's like, I don't want Greta Gerwig. Trying to tell black stories because Mm -hmm. that's out of her depth. And I'm starting to come around and feel similarly to John Hughes, where it's like We saw how he handled black people. Yeah, it's bad. Like he's not good at it. I don't want him telling black stories because Stay in your lane, John. Stay in your fucking lane. He can't do it. And yeah, there's plenty to critique about how this how the genre as a whole, again, took the wrong things from his movies and what that meant was the default of whiteness. But again, we live in a fucking white supremacist society. That was, that's the default in all situations, not just teen movies. Mm -hmm. And again, that doesn't make it okay. That's not giving it a pass. It's looking at the fucked up shitty reality we live in and looking at it in its face. Mm -hmm. And that's the shitty reality that we're in. And it fucking sucks. Mm -hmm.
1: So like, I think that's, that's how I feel about John Hughes as opposed to like feeling very much like I felt like a, as, as opposed to feeling like, oh, I got to take this dude down a pig because no one's looking at him critically is the way that they should be.
0: Everybody looks at him critically. <laughs>
1: well, pe- people do, but like it's it's that the the moments, those, those, mm-hmm. those, those, those WrestleMania moments are the yeah. only things that stick in your brain. And like, that's that's good and bad. Yes. It means like, yeah, the glaringly bad shit, like fucking long duck dong. That sticks in your brain.
0: Yeah, that shit's but, bad. But
1: the glaringly good stuff also sticks in your brain. But it's all of the, the the deeper things beyond the moments, the intent behind the moments. What does that fist bump mean? Mm-hmm. Is it optimistic or is it just optimistic for now? Yeah. Like that That to me is a significantly better discussion of John Hughes's teen films in particular.
0: Yeah. So this is some other stuff that uh, Mike McPadden says in Teen Movie Hell that I quite like. Says, so criticize all you want about how lip gloss and a mom-acceptable hairdo could cure, quote unquote, creative oddball Ali Sheedy. The Breakfast Club stands as a generation-defining classic. Good, bad, indifferent, or nauseating and soul-shattering. Hughes's adolescent Magnum Opus did for 1980s teens. What Rebel Without a Cause pulled off in the 50s, Easy Writer reinterpreted in the 60s. In the 70s, kids smoked their entertainment so they were happy with other people's nostalgia via American Graffiti and Animal House. But let's not gloss over what The Breakfast Club cost us as a culture. Just as Walt Disney co-opted and assimilated the thrills of the traveling carnival or the seaside boardwalk, scrubbing away their danger while concocting the mega corporate theme park, John Hughes strip-mined 80s teen sex comedies. Hughes reversed the process of alchemy, transmogrifying these films' inherent madness into middle-of-the-road mush. After this $1 million investment brought in $51 million in theaters, the property morphed into a never-ending cash geyser on cable TV and the home video. On top of the financial windfall, The Breakfast Club also enabled studio executives to boast about scoring a youth hit without having to blush about fart gags, intoxicated dogs, and if they had any shame, underage flesh. The Breakfast Club successfully opened the decade's teen movie moment to female viewers, and that's admirable. However, he also inspired film companies to stupidly try courting the newly enlarged audience by going mawkish and melodramatic. For an especially heinous example, witness the 1988 Molly Ringwald and Andrew McCarthy snoozefest Fresh Horses. Hughes himself hit the same dead end in 1987 when he remade his previous year's hit, Pretty in Pink, as the gender flipped Some Kind of Wonderful. As Hollywood adjusted its product down for the market widening pg-13 rating and teenage boys found bonafide pornography with increasing ease the result was a post porky's apocalypse the monstrous success of the breakfast club essentially bit off the genitals of the 80s teen sex comedy chomped them into goo and spewed forth a froth that steadily evolved into our present intertween monoculture when you grow up your heart may or may not die but my favorite movie genre and all of the liberating promise it contained Definitely did. And here's where I lay the blame.
1: Again, that's not the movie's fault. Nope. It's not John Hughes's fault. Nope. But and Mike's absolutely right about all that. He's absolutely ex- ex- right. Except for maybe saying that some kind of wonderful isn't that great.
0: I love some kind of wonderful. Same. And that we talked about that in that episode that I disagree with Mike on that one. Cause I yeah. fucking love some kind of wonderful, but no, he's totally right. Like this movie was incredible. It was, you know, generation defining. It was just so boundary breaking. And then Everything that came after it took the wrong lessons from it. Mm -hmm. It turned the teen genre kind of gutless. It turned it into a monoculture, one that we are still to this day fighting tooth and nail to get out of. Mm -hmm. Like when this episode goes live, the movie Bottoms will be out in theaters. It is queer. It is a sex comedy. It is raunchy. It is inappropriate. It uses, you know, not politically correct language. It is very in your face. And I am already dreading the discourse surrounding this movie uh, because it's going to be fucking out of pocket because so many people are not prepared to process a, quote unquote, problematic fave anymore.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like there are going to be people, the people who get it, they're going to be like, this movie is fucking amazing. This is life changing. I love it. The people who don't get it are going to be like violently against this movie. And it's because they want teen movies to look more like The Breakfast Club. And I don't understand why both can't exist. I agree.
1: Because, like, there's there's even problematic things about this. Like, Molly Ringwald wrote all about it by watching it with her kids and wrote a great uh, op-ed about
0: it. Yeah, we talk about it a little bit more in depth in our 16 Candles episode because I think it's a bigger problem in 16 Candles than oh, it yeah, is here. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, but she wrote a piece for The New Yorker about re-watching her movies with her daughter. And she goes into the parts that have not aged well, including in The Breakfast Club where Bender... Puts his face between her legs, and mm-hmm. you know there's an upskirt shot. That's a body double. That's not Molly Ringwald. Um, but you know she's underage when that scene happened, and her reaction is that she you know hits him in the back and is like "fuck you, man." But she doesn't rat him out. She just kind of accepts it because in the '80s, that's how we. That's what we were taught to do. Is Boys are gross to you, and you just have to kind of fucking deal with it. Boys will be boys. And what's always fascinating to me, though, about that scene, because I know that scene is there. I know that it's coming. And I had it in my head of like, oh, this is going to be so bad. And then the scene happened, and I was like, wait, the movie tells us that he's being a piece of shit for this. The Mm -hmm. movie is not encouraging this behavior it's he's, in
1: character for him to do that yeah like it's it'd be shitty. disingenuous for him to be like oh no let me shield my eyes
0: right like he's being a shit and it's like again it's not giving a pass it's not giving an excuse for it but it's like oh no the movie is telling me that this is a bad thing for him to do so if people thought that that was funny or they took that as like, oh, <laughs> I would do the same thing. That tells me way more about that person than <laughs> than that scene does.
1: Yeah. Again, the movie's very clear about what it's saying. Mm-hmm. Like v- very much this so. This movie is so clear about every fucking thing it's saying, man.
0: Yeah. it, it is. And I mean, something that we haven't fully like talked about is also the the communal experience of them smoking weed together.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I mean, because again, the movie does not hide the fact that like John Bender is like breaking rules because he just has a fuck load of weed in his locker. So much weed, man! It is so much weed in his locker. Yeah, um, you know, but they all get high together, and then that's what kind of chills them all out and it It breaks down
1: their inhibitions.
0: It breaks down the inhibitions. It takes the walls down and that's when they're the most honest with each other Mm -hmm. um, for good and bad. And I think that there's something about communal experiences. Like I'm not saying that that means like you should get, do drugs with your friends or you should go get drunk with your friends. I love drinking with my friends. It's one of my favorite things. But like, it's weird because I do think about how you know, again, I've talked in the show about being kind of a wild child during, you know, certain eras of my life. Some of my most like treasured conversations I've had with people have been when we're both like high out of our fucking minds.
1: Mm-hmm. Um I mean, that, some of my most cherished moments are at a, a 24-hour diner at, like, 3 a.m., mm-hmm. where everyone already, like, you can become best friends with some fucking woo girl who came from the gay bar and also some shitty punk from the carnival-themed punk bar up the street that people refuse to let it be a carnival-themed punk bar.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: They're just like, no,
1: it's the same old shitty holt punk bar it used to be. Yeah. Like, you can have, like, bonding experiences that are so intense there, and then, like, you fill yourself up with food and you come down off of being drunk and you sober up a little bit and like that's when you have like the most real moments of your life with the people you care about.
0: Yeah. Like there there's something really powerful and that's not to say that you can't also have those, you know, deep connective moments without being, you know, under the influence of something.
1: No, but like for me, mm-hmm. spiritually These are some of the most important moments I've had.
0: Fucking same because I know who I am and who I am is extremely high strung and like a a control freak and neurotic as hell. And so when I am not sober, I do chill out. I am a little bit more vulnerable. I am a little bit more willing to let people in in Mm -hmm. ways that I typically am not. And so that does foster like very deep connection for me. Like I just recognize that that's, something for me as an individual. And if that is something good for you as well, that's awesome. If that doesn't work for you, also awesome. Because again, we're all fucking different people and our problems are different and our lives are different, but we're still fucking people. Mm -hmm. And that's the central tenet of this movie. (laughs) Isn't it
2: neat? My God, are we gonna be like our parents? Not me. Ever. It's unavoidable. It just happens. What happens? When you grow up, your heart dies. Who cares? I care.
0: And admittedly, this episode has been a lot more about kind of like big brain issues rather than like individual events throughout the movie Dude, this is a big brain movie it's a big brain movie and also there are so many podcasts that have done like beat by beat assessments of the breakfast club and that's not what our show is anyway
1: exactly but like this is this is cinema yeah this is classic cinema <laughs> this isn't just teen fair which means there is no shortage of analysis and dissection of this
0: exactly but I hope that this was a worthy conversation for three years of the Sunset Prom, an experience that has absolutely changed our lives for the better. I think so. Yeah, and I don't want to get too too sappy and I feel like we say the same thing every year on our anniversary, but this is like what I look forward to every single week. And I love these conversations and I feel like I learned so much about you and I learned so much about me and you know, it it helps reshape the way that I look at the world around me and the people I interact with. And it's just wild that that all happens in movies typically set in fucking high schools. High school never ends. I mean,
1: it doesn't. And like it's high school ends when you decide it ends. But most people don't stop being in high school.
0: Yeah, it like it. You know, they they joke that, like, you know, the four years in high school, the most four important years of your life, and then you become an adult, and everyone's like, it doesn't actually matter. High school doesn't mean shit. It doesn't matter. But it does. Like, it does, because the way that we learn to interact with each other is sort of formed here, because it's when you finally start doing things on your own terms, but, you know, you still have bosses. You still have principles. Like, you still have authority figures that are sort of keeping you in line, and, Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's you know freedom and you know the, a lot of things do change and not being trapped in a literal high school is a godsend for so many of us. But like a lot of those feelings don't go away. A lot of those insecurities don't go away. They just change shape. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why The Breakfast Club is so timeless and is able to be enjoyed by you know a variety of generations, including you know the generation now who the high school experience of the breakfast club is like unrecognizable to the high school experience now. And yet it still resonates because those feelings of being misunderstood and those feelings of being anti-establishment and those feelings of realizing, you know, we need to be banding together to fight the real enemy, but instead they put us into these little niche groups and then have us infighting so that we're too busy and too distracted arguing with each other about you know, pointless bullshit to recognize that the people in power are the ones that are causing all of the actual problems in our lives. Like mm-hmm. that shit doesn't go away. Nope.
1: Still, uh, still sitting there. And people, the day we're recording this is the day that Trump's mugshot's gonna come out, and like Oh my just god, like, I'm so excited! Ha ha ha! Isn't Trump's mugshot silly? Ha ha ha! I'm like, no, this is gonna be funny, but also like.
0: But also, like, let's not. <laughs> we got forget. other shit we gotta
1: focus on, dog. <laughs>
0: let's not forget the fact that like this is gonna be like a nice, uh, a nice little, a little, a little treat for all of us, but also, if your activism uh, starts and ends with making fun of Trump's mugshot, get out of my face. Mm -hmm. (laughs) People are dying, Kim. (laughs) (laughs) Kim, people are dying. (laughs) I know the answer, but Harmony, the time has come. The Breakfast Club is asking you to the prom, yes, no, maybe, sending them on their own.
1: I've kind of been avoiding revisiting this one for a very long time because... I don't know, man. I, I didn't want The Breakfast Club to be to be bad. I didn't want it to be hokey. I didn't want it to be like a Garden State, basically, mm-hmm. or like a Perks of Being a Wallflower, where it's like, oh man, this was the deepest shit I ever saw when I was like 17. But now it's like, oh god, it's embarrassing. Mm-hmm. I didn't want it to be like that, and it's not. Yeah, like it is such a well fucking made movie, and it balances like the 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 moral quandaries of just like. Having a conversation with someone like it's some my dinner with Andre shit. <laughs> it balances that so well with like a teen medium. And it doesn't get into like quirky, overwrought nonsense like mumblecore as we would see it. Mm-hmm. Like it, everything has a point. Everything mm-hmm. has a purpose. There's not a wasted beat in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like it is just fucking pristine. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I think I said when we did like maybe i probably said this about most of the John Hughes films where I'm like Pretty in Pink's my favorite John Hughes film. It's like Some Kind of Wonderful is my favorite John Hughes film. And I'm like maybe Ferris Bueller is my favorite John Hughes film. Who knows? But like I don't know. I, in the moment because it doesn't have to be forever. In the moment The Breakfast Club is my favorite John Hughes film.
0: See and here's the thing which is like wild as hell is because I know I've been very much on like Some Kind of Wonderful like that's my my thing. I think my favorite John Hughes movie, period, is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Well, certainly. Um, but that's, that's absolutely. the adults. I'm
1: talking teens. But
0: the teen movies, like, it's like saying your favorite band's the Beatles, but like, it's it's so fucking formative. It's the formative. best for a
1: reason. It's the
0: best for a reason. And like you go back and you rewatch it and you think you remember, like similarly to how I was like, I remember Revenge of the Nerds. It's terrible. And then you watch it and it's way worse than it, than you remember it. The Breakfast Club is so much better than you think it is. Like, like you think you remember the Breakfast Club and then you actually sit down and you watch it and you're like, God fucking damn it. This movie's good. Yeah.
1: Like I enjoy like Pretty in Pink and I enjoy some kind of wonderful and like, Ferris Bueller is maybe the most quotable movie of the entire 80s mm-hmm. in terms of and just having the most iconic shots in the entire decade mm-hmm. but this is my favorite one to think about.
0: And that's the thing is like you and I could sit here and talk for three more hours about this movie and like still not have even scratched the surface. We could have individual episodes dedicated to each of the characters in this movie and they would fill an hour. And now people
1: are going to ask us to do that on the Patreon. <laughs>
0: Oh no. Maybe they might.
1: (laughs) Maybe, maybe that, maybe we'll actually fucking will. I don't know. That's a good idea.
0: Yeah. Who knows? Maybe, maybe that'll end up being like once, once the Patreon is high enough for us to pay rent, we'll start doing episodes where we just do like full episodes dedicated to a single character in movies. You know what? There we go. I put it out in the, into the ether. That, that's the next stretch goal, (laughs) y'all. Oh, goodness. Well, Thank you for listening to this episode and listening to us ramble and have feelings. And thank you for three years of support. I still can't believe this is a thing we get to do. Right? It's so fucking cool. Like
1: we get to do this cool thing, mostly just in our underwear, in our living room. And people appreciate it.
0: It's because it's too hot to wear clothes because we can't have the air on. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, like, we, we do pretty okay. And you all, uh, it's pretty much thanks to all of you because... I can sit it around in my underwear and talk to BJ without recording it and editing it.
0: <laughs> yeah. The fact that we're still doing this while also still working 40 hour jobs is nothing short of miraculous, in my opinion, because all of the other like big podcasts that are like in our realm, like that's their job. Like their job is podcasts. Or they
1: have editors.
0: Yeah, we don't. Yeah. We have we have each other. <laughs> oh, I mean
1: that's all we need.
0: That's all we need. It's you and me against the world, baby. <laughs> yeah. But you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at the up Prom. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Blue Sky at BJ Colangelo,
1: and you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velocia underscore trap underscore tour, and at Blue Sky at Harmony Colangelo. I have been using Blue Sky. I'm so I'm proud not of you. Really using the other ones too much, but then guy wasn't that much to begin with. Yeah, that's also true. So proportionately, pound for pound, I'm using Blue Sky the most, I guess.
0: <laughs> and thank you as always to the Sounder Bombs for allowing us to use "Title" as our theme song. Harmony, this is a biggie. Who gets to be the band that is recommended with The Breakfast Club?
1: So, uh, fun story. I thought I recommended this band, and I tried to figure out why. And then I remembered I guessed it on Biff Radio to talk about this album and this band uh, like two years ago and realized I never plugged them because I'm a damn fool. So, this week we are shouting out the band We Are The Union, and their newest album is Ordinary Life from 2021. It is ska punk. It is queer ska punk it's about finding yourself and big changes and big feelings and it is so good and i believe i believe that we will be going to their first ever headlining show in los angeles in like three days after this comes out and it's gonna be an awesome ska show like bad operation's gonna be there suzy true the pop punk band that was adopted by the ska scene will be there half past two will be there it's gonna be super good i'm very excited um first ska show in los angeles uh, this this album's super good. It was maybe my favorite album of the year it came out. So you know, take that for what it's worth. BJ, mm-hmm. do you have anything you want to say? I, th- I we own a photo book of yeah. this album.
0: Yeah, yeah. Ray Mystic, who does the photos of us that we share all the time, like the ones with the bubbles that y'all like. Uh, Ray did a photo book on We Are the Union. We own that because uh, Ray is the, just one of the most incredible photographers, especially when it comes to live music. So god i love ray hi ray i love you if you're listening <laughs> i honestly like i love everybody in we're the union hi reed i love you you're great hi jared love you you're great just everybody you're all mm-hmm. great um yeah we're the union fucking rules uh absolutely a perfect band to recommend with the breakfast club because it's just good shit mm-hmm. it's just good shit it's it's a band that you've probably heard are they that good though yes they are that good mm-hmm. just like the breakfast club it is that good yep <laughs> Well, that takes us out. We will see you next time. And don't forget, save that last dance for us. Bye. Don't you. (laughs) Don't, 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 don't.
2: see us as you want to see us. In the simplest terms, with the most convenient definitions. But what we found out is that each one of us is a brain, and an athlete, and a basket case, a princess, and a criminal. Does that answer your question? Sincerely yours, The Breakfast Club.
1: This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.